Thank you. You may be seated. Remember, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the picture of kingship from the Old Testament, and now we move forward in looking at the fact that Christ was the promised king. And so everything we study uh, as we lead up to Christmas Day is ultimately uh, to give us a picture of why Christ was so important, why he was the only Savior uh, that we needed and the only Savior God provided. And in Psalm 89, we get a picture of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in detail. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk us through this bit by bit to show us and to dwell on the fact that God is faithful to his people in the way he provides a king and a kingdom. And just so you know, we desperately need God to provide those things. Because we see from God's word that apart from God acting, we are like sheep who go astray. We wander and chase after whatever comes before us. And what we needed more than anything was for God to provide a king who would lead us, provide for us, care for us, and ultimately rescue us. And Jesus was that ultimate king. But in our psalm, what we're going to see is the immediate context of the psalm is going to be referring to David in particular. But the picture of David isn't just about him, it was that Jesus would come from the line of David and he would be the perfect king that we needed. So in Psalm 89, I want to walk you through this. We are going to tackle the whole thing, but don't be frightened by that. I believe what we can do is show uh, you very quickly the faithfulness of God in his provision of a king. Would you start with me in verse 1? And what I want to show you is that God's faithfulness is seen in him providing David and the line that would come from him. The psalmist writes in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Again, right from the very get-go of this psalm, the psalmist basically gives us a summary of what the psalm's going to be about. And it's all about the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Those two things are always linked together. They're, they're commonly linked together throughout God's word. His steadfast love combined with his faithfulness. And I mentioned to you this morning as we looked at Psalm 100, I mentioned to you that the quotations of steadfast love of the Lord and faithfulness, those quotations come from Exodus 34, verse 6. And I've told you on numerous occasions that Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 are the two most foundational verses in the Old Testament that tell us who God is up until Jesus' arrival. So the most important two verses in the Old Testament you can cling to, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, tell us the clearest view of who God is. Well, what we see here at the beginning of this psalm is a quotation from it referring to the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness to all generations. That is the summary of this entire psalm. But I want to point out to you that the backdrop to this psalm doesn't appear to be a perfect day. The backdrop to this psalm seems to be pain and struggle and asking the question, is God still there? 
The psalmist begins by telling us that he will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. So there is praise to God for his steadfast love that never runs out, that never dries up. The love of God is not fickle. He doesn't love you one minute and hates you the next. The love of God is so eternal and everlasting that we as his children never have to question whether God truly loves us or not. He has demonstrated it not only in our own lives, but ultimately he demonstrated his love on the cross. And this love of God is what the psalmist praises him for. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. And notice what God's faithfulness is tied to. Verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So the faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God is directly tied to his covenant relationship with his people and specifically in providing David their king. God says that his love and faithfulness to his people is demonstrated by the fact that God gives them a king of his own choosing and provides David and those who would come after him as a blessing to the people of God, one who would lead God's people well and point them to the sufficiency of their father who is in heaven. And so the covenant faithfulness of God is directly tied to this king and the promised kingdom that he would establish. And God says he's going to be faithful to that even when the people aren't. Because the throne of David, God promises, is for all generations, not just for those who were living in 1000 BC. That's good news because that means that these same promises are still in effect right now. So we see the, the praise for God for his steadfast love and faithfulness in covenant relationship with the people he chose. And specifically with the king God provides. Now I want to point you to the psalmist goes into this long diatribe about the, the wonders of God. He says in verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Right, talking about the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, the psalmist is going to walk us through a history of that faithfulness and love. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Most likely angels. Those angels that God created, that God has demonstrated, there's heavenly praise raining out even from the assembly of the holy ones as the angels consider who God is. They praise him because of his faithfulness. They say in verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Here's the basis for why they praise God. Because who is like him? No one compares to him. No one compares to God. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? 
So, so the psalmist starts with this praise that rings out because of God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness seen in his providing a king to the people and choosing a people for himself. And now what the author writes and gives to us is the greatness of God above all others. There is no one greater than him, no holy ones who are greater than him, no heavenly beings who are greater than him. Verse 7, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. When the angels assemble, guess who's to be feared? Not the angels. God who created them is greatly to be feared, to be revered, to be worshipped. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your what? Faithfulness all around you. Psalmist is going to keep ticking him off, right? As he goes down the line, he's thinking about how great God is, how great God is, how great God is, how great God is. He says, you rule the raging sea. In verse 9, the sea was deemed to be untamable. No one could control the sea. It was viewed as chaos. Well, guess what? The psalmist says, you rule the raging sea. God is not just powerful. He's all-powerful. Even the chaos of the seas, he lumps in and he carves out their boundaries. He says, when its waves rise, you still them. Now that sounds familiar for something later on. Who can still the seas? Right, but right here it says, right, God is the one who stills the seas. When Jesus shows up and quiets the waves, guess what Jesus is displaying? I'm God. I'm not just a good guy. I'm not just a good teacher. When Jesus calms the waves, he is pronouncing he is God because only God can calm those things. Verse 10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This is talking about the, the victory of God over even human nations. No human nation can stand above him. Some think Rahab is a reference to Egypt. But what we see here is that no one exercises control or power over God. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world, all that is in it, you have founded them, the north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon joyless, uh, joyously praise your name, right? Those are the two big mountains in the area. Even the mountains, the psalmist says, praise you. They speak of your creative power and your glory. Verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. It's talking about the fact that God is acting upon his creation. He didn't just make it, he acts upon it by his mighty hand. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and what? Faithfulness go before you. Again, the combination of the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of God before him. Think about that. The psalmist has just given us a great picture of the power and majesty of God. And this reason why God deserves praise is because of his wonders listed out in these verses that we need to be reminded of daily. This is the God we serve. But then he goes on because what he gives us in the next section is think about this. Think about how this marvelous God who's been described in these past verses, think about how marvelous it is that he 
pledges himself to a people. Remember, Psalmist started out by talking about the steadfast love and faithfulness of God seen in the fact that he enters into covenant with people, provides a king for those people. Then he lists out all the wonders of God, the power of God, the mighty hand of God. And then what does he do? He transitions into, now how marvelous is it to think through the fact that this powerful, almighty God pledges himself to a people and says, I'll be your God and you'll be mine. Verse 15, blessed are the people who know the, fe the feastal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. The festal shout is that, that shout of worship. And God says, blessed are the people who know that worship. Blessed are the people who walk in the light of the Lord and in the light of his face, who exult in the name of God all the day. And who are exalted in the righteousness of God. You want to know what it means to be blessed? You know what really provides joy? Is to know the worship of God. To walk in light of his glory. To exalt God's name all the day. And to be exalted in the righteousness of God. Which means to be declared righteous before him. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Where, where's the big screen TV? Big screen TV. Nice car. Uh, uh, kids who obey you? Uh, <laughs> no, no. It says, blessed are the people who know worship of God, walk in the light of his face, exalt his name all the day, and are exalted in God's righteousness. That's what it means to be truly blessed. That's what it means to have joy. All the other things are just ancillary because if you're really going to have joy in this life, it's going to have to come only in relationship with Christ. You can't have these things outside of that. And blessed is the man who has the redemption found only in God, who knows the worship of God, walks in the light of his glory, exalts the glory of God's name all the day, and is exalted himself in the righteousness of God. To be declared right by God. That's what it means to have pure joy. How marvelous to think that the God who is over all the seas and created every person who walks the earth loves us enough and is faithful to us to provide a relationship between us and him that we might be blessed. You're going to get excited about that later. Verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength. God is the, he is the basis for blessing. It's his strength that we glory in. By your favor, our horn is exalted. That's a picture of power. It's a picture of a king. So basically they say God's the one who not only provides, he's the one who gives the power to do all of this glorying and exalting. And then what we see next is God's continued faithfulness. And this is spoken in the immediate context with David. But I want to point out to you that David was a type of Jesus. And so ultimately, any description of, of David and the, the eternality of his kingdom is going to be tied to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who secures the everlasting throne of David. Verse 18. For our shield, which is a word for king... Remember, they're praising the king. For our shield belongs to the Lord. David is not ultimately in charge of God's people. God is ultimately in charge of God's people. But God had given them a shield. He goes on to explain, our king to the Holy One of Israel, 
Of old you've spoken a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The beautiful picture here is the faithfulness of God that the psalmist is singing about is in connection with God providing David and giving him the power to rule God's people well. The fact that God had chosen David from among the people to give to Israel. That God had not only chosen him and provided him, but had equipped him to be able to lead God's people well. And the psalmist is praising God for the fact that not only did he supply a king, but he's over that king. Verse 22, the enemy shall not, shall not outwit him and the wicked shall not humble him. Why? Because God is over him. Verse 23, I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. Notice that God's doing all the talking here. And he's the one saying, y'all see what I do? Verse 20, I have found David my servant. Verse 20, I have anointed him. Verse 23, I will crush his foes. Verse 23, I will strike down those who hate him. Verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea. Verse 27, I will make him the firstborn. Verse 28, I will keep him forever. Who's doing all the talking? God's doing all the talking. And he says, it's not David who does all these things. I do all these things through him. I provided the king and I give him everything he needs. It's my faithfulness, God says, that is the basis for your worship. Because David is just a man who is flawed like the rest of us. But God says, I'm going to give him victory. I'm going to give him power. I'm going to guide his hand. I'm going to care for him. Because God is saying, I'm the faithful king you need. And then I want to point, again, all of this discussion about David is ultimately pointing us to the fact that Jesus was going to perfectly fulfill these verses. Because David would stumble. David would sin. He would fail. But guess who didn't? Jesus. And Christ was the king given by the Father to perfectly lead his people out of slavery and out of spiritual bondage. And the Father perfectly fulfills all of these promises in Jesus. That in Christ... God would supply his servant. In Christ, we would have the anointed one of God. In Christ, God would be crushing his foes. In Christ, God would be striking down those who were opposed to him. In Christ, God was, was, was setting his hand on the sea. In Christ, he was the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. These are, talked, these are spoken of David in the context, but they don't just mean David. They mean the king, the Messiah, the promised one who would lead them out of slavery to sin. And then God says, I will keep him forever, verse 28. That is only accomplished primarily in Christ. And the reason I can say that this text is talking primarily of Jesus is because of verse 26. You need to look in your Bible at verse 26. And you need to underline this. You ready? He shall cry to me, you are my father. Can I help you? In the Old Testament... 
we don't have a patriarch or a human being who is able to speak of this type of relationship to God. It's not till after Jesus comes that people start referring to God as Father. In the Old Testament, this addressing God as Father is a special relationship. That's why I believe that Psalm 89 is not ultimately about David, but Psalm 89, Jesus was the one who called him Father. The Father and I are one. So verse 26 tells me that what the psalmist is indicating is that's not David lifted up. Ultimately, it is Jesus, the one who would secure the throne of David forever. My covenant, he says in verse 28, will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. That can only be purchased in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can establish offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, coming off that beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God over his throne, over, uh, over his people, ultimately satisfied in Jesus, I want to turn your attention to verses 30 through 37. Because in this, we see that God is not simply going to forget about the fact that there are people sinning against him and rebelling. And ultimately, people rebelled against David, too. And people ultimately rebelled against Christ. And you would expect that God would just be done with people who did that. If they rebelled against him, that he would just cast them off, no longer his people. Notice what we see in verses 30 through 37. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. God says, I will punish those who rebel against me, who sin. Sin deserves punishment from God, if he's righteous. And then verse 33. You want to underline or highlight this, right? Guess what awaits those who have rebelled against God? Guess what they deserve? They deserve punishment for their transgressions with the rod. They deserve stripes for their iniquity. Verse 33. But... Oh, oh, we need that because otherwise we're just left with they're going to be punished for their sin. They deserve the rod. They deserve to be whipped for their sin. But God says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God says, verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. God says, I'm not turning back on what I promised. Even in the midst of rebellion, even against the people forsaking the king that God provided, God says, I will not violate my covenant. God is not a promise breaker, and God is not a liar. Verse 35, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, by my character, God says, by who I am I swear by who I am, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall continue forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. The minute the moon 
ceases to exist, you can start to question the faithfulness of God. But the moon is established forever. God says it is a sign. It is a picture of the fact that his faithfulness will endure. His offspring, the offspring of David, shall endure forever. And just so you know, that's not something that David can secure for himself. That's something that only Jesus secures. Jesus is the one who from the line of David secures that all of those who come from him, that the throne will be established forever just as the moon is established forever. Just as the sun continues to shine, a faithful witness in the skies that God is true to his promises and he will not go back on what he's promised. The offspring of David shall endure forever. We see that secured for us in Jesus and then we are linked together with him as believers. So we also can rest in the promises that we are part of the kingdom of God and we will never, ever be cast out. And then God goes on to talk about the unfaithfulness of the people in verse 38. And what you see from this section is that it looks like or it feels like from the psalmist's perspective, it looks or feels like God has gone back on his promises. It feels from the psalmist's view that God has gone back on the promises he made that the, the people would endure, the kingdom would endure, the king would be endure. Because remember, this isn't being written in a day where everything is perfect and fine. In fact, this could have been written at a time of conquering where God's people are carried off into exile. Well, guess what it feels like when they're carried off into exile? It feels like God's given up on them. It feels like they've been taken from their land. They've been taken from their king. They have no king to turn to. They have no land to belong to. In exile, they wonder, God, have you turned your back on us? Have you forgotten what you promised? Are you forsaking us forever? And what God is saying in this moment is, I never turn back on my promise. The psalmist says in verse 38, maybe you felt this in certain days. Maybe there's been days you've struggled to walk with God. Maybe there's been days you've wondered, is God really still answering my prayers? Is he still really caring for me? Does he still love me? Are the promises he made still true? Maybe there are days that comes up and you wonder if those things are still true. You're in good company, verse 38, but now you've cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. This is what the psalmist, this is how it looks like to him. God, it looks like you've taken away the king. It looks like you've taken away the kingdom. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. That's why I believe it, it sounds awful lot like being carried off into captivity. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword. Notice that the psalmist is saying, God, you're doing all this. You've not made him to stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. The psalmist is saying, God, you looks like you've taken away all the promises you made. And it looks like you've taken back the king you gave us and the kingdom you said we'd be a part of. Oh, there are some days when it looks like everything's falling apart. And it looks like the kingdom is long from happening. And it looks like Jesus isn't reigning anymore. But just so you know, the circumstances of our life do not change the promises of God. God promised that he would be our king and we would be his people forever. 
And no circumstances of life can change what God has promised. Is God a liar? Has God gone back on what he's promised? No. And this whole psalm seems to be pointing us to that fact. That even when everything around them seems to look like God has taken back everything he promised and no longer cares for them and they're no longer his people, verse 46, the psalmist makes his plea to God. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? The psalmist says, remember how short my time is. <laughs> God, remember, I don't, I don't live long. I'd like to see some of this built back before I go. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your what? Steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. The psalmist says, God, you promised steadfast love. God, you promised faithfulness. How long do we have to wait to see that day come? Verse 50, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. To me, that sounds like one who's been conquered by outside nations. How I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Talking about King David. The psalmist says it looks like Everything has fallen apart. And it looks like, God, you've gone back on your promises. But what does the psalmist plea for? Restoration. He pleads, how long, God? He's not saying we don't deserve it. He's not saying you're not justified in doing it. What he's saying is, God, how long is your wrath going to burn? When is there going to be relief? When is there going to be restoration? When are you going to give us that king in the kingdom you promised? It looks like it's all gone away. When are you going to supply that? And guess what God is telling us all throughout his word? God is providing a king for his people and a kingdom for them to dwell in forever. And it wasn't David who was going to secure that king and kingdom. God was going to provide the better king. And Jesus would come and he would have his days cut short and he would bear the stripes of our sin. He would be crushed for our iniquity. He would be the one who would take all the punishment that we deserve because of our rebellion against him. Jesus would come and he would faithfully, obediently follow the will of his father and he would die on the cross so that rebellious people like this, rebellious people like us could be rescued and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son who is the rightful king of all creation. And in Christmas, what we're celebrating is not just a cute baby who was born in a manger, not just presents, not just food, not just family. What we're celebrating at Christmas is God finally gave the king we had been waiting for. God finally provided the king who would faithfully follow him, who wouldn't stumble, who wouldn't fall. And he would take all the punishment we deserve for our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew 
no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That God would take our place to dwell with us. The king that David was pointing to is the one who finally arrived. The anointed one of God, the Messiah, the one who would finally lead his people out of spiritual bondage to sin and would set them free to be a part of his kingdom and to worship the king faithfully forever. That's what Christmas is. It's not, it's not a cute story of a little baby. It is the story of the conquering king finally arriving on the scene. And what we get to do is we get to praise God for the fact that God was and is faithful to his promises. He said, I'm going to give you a king to rule over you. And he gave them David, but David was just a temporary king. He was going to provide the permanent king in King Jesus. And God promised, I'm going to make you a people for myself. I'm going to make you one family in God. And guess what he's doing today? God is saving people every single day and adding to the one family of God that will one day all praise his name around his throne forever. And we'll be able to finally sing in that moment because of what King Jesus did for us, we will finally be able to sing Psalm 89 verses one and two. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. That that promise that God made, we will be able to proclaim forever and ever. And guess what? We don't have to wait for the day to come because Jesus has already arrived. He's already rescued us. And as a result, we can sing right now in this moment, we can sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. We can sing of his faithfulness to all generations because in Jesus, God the Father finally provided the king we needed who would rescue us from the depths of our sin. Verse 52, the psalmist concludes, blessed be the Lord forever. My prayer this morning is that every person in this room knows. And when I mean know, I don't mean you know facts about Jesus or that you know facts about God, but that every person in this room knows through salvation the love of God in Christ. If you're here today and you're hoping that somehow you can enter into God's kingdom on your own, or that somehow you can slip in the back door with your good deeds, or that somehow you can make yourself right to enter into the kingdom of God on your own, I want to show you very clearly that God is the one who chooses a people for himself and makes a family out of sinners. That he's the one who calls us to be with him. There's nothing we can do to earn that. We simply have it through the free grace and love of God through Christ on the cross. That because God sent him to die, we could actually be justified before God. Not because of our works, not because of our deeds, but because of Christ's finished work on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he was showing that he had the power over all sin, over Satan. He had power over all things, including death. And when God raised his son from the dead, Jesus was given the name that was above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee would what? Bow. Every tongue would what? Confess that Jesus is the Lord. He's the king. He's the rightful one to sit on the throne. 
God does that by his love and faithfulness to us. He provides the king we needed. And this morning, you need to bow the knee to King Jesus and worship him, to seek his forgiveness, to ask that that his death on the cross would count for your sins. And Christians, don't get bummed out by Christmas season. Some of you stress and worry. We celebrate this season remembering that we have joy in Christ now. That even when the circumstances of life seem to spin out of control, we have a king who's still sitting on his throne. King Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is the king who is right now ruling and reigning over his creation. And as Christians... We need to start seeing that there's joy in this day. Not for our circumstances, but for the king who God finally gave us, who would bring us into his beautiful kingdom forever. May we celebrate that every day until we see him face to face. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you show us that you are supremely faithful, God, to us even when we've been unfaithful to you. And God, we don't deserve that type of love, but you give it. And you gave it ultimately through your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you're glorified above all else. And God, that you would draw people to yourself, that they would see their desperate need for forgiveness, that they would see that they are desperate sinners who have rebelled against the rightful king of all the universe. And God, that you might draw them to yourself, that they might find forgiveness in your son, Jesus, who died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sin. And so, Lord, I pray you'll draw people this morning who have never trusted in you before. I pray, Lord, that they might see that what they need is your forgiveness found only in your son. And may they cry out to him. May they bow before the feet of Jesus and cry out that his blood would cover their sin. Lord, do that for your own glory so that others will worship you. And Father, help us as Christians to see what a privileged position we're in. We're not Christians because we looked the part or because we did something to earn your forgiveness. We're Christians today simply because you loved us enough and your faithfulness was poured out on us that you would rescue us from the depths of our sin even though we hated you. Oh Lord, you alone deserve praise for that. And may we as Christians live every day in this life pointing people to the beauty of what Christ has done in saving our souls and father i pray that during this season it wouldn't just be about family and gifts but god this season would be about the ultimate gift you gave that you gave your son up so that we could be called children of god oh lord work in the hearts of these people today work in our hearts stir up worship save those who need to be saved And help us as Christians to bask in your glory and the joy that is found only in our Savior and our King. We ask it all in the name of the King of kings, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.